Good morning, Redemption. Who is Jesus? It's the most significant question I'd suggest that you can ask. For starters, because Jesus is the most significant figure who's ever walked the face of this planet. As a famous historian, Yaroslav Pelikan puts it, Jesus is the most dominant figure in history. He says, if, you were, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Another famous historian, Tom Holland, I'm reading his newest book right now where he talks about the impact of Christianity on the world, and he talks about how studying this actually changed his perspective on Christianity, saying that now he sees it as uh, the Jesus movement shaping and influencing the very foundations of uh, so much of our values, institutions, way of life today, many things that we take for granted because we've just come to accustomed to this being like the way things are. He's suggesting that we live in a Jesus-shaped world. But you'll notice I asked not who Jesus was, but who Jesus is. Because Jesus is more than just an interesting historical figure. Jesus is alive and he's still changing lives today. My kids have the show they love to watch called The Who Was Show. And it looks at interesting historical figures such as who was Amelia Earhart, who was George Washington Carver. But if they made one about Jesus, it would more aptly be titled not who was Jesus, but who is Jesus. Because Jesus is the reigning king who's conquered death and is ruling over heaven and earth today. Around the world, billions of worshipers on every continent worship him as Lord. In Africa, Asia, Latin America, and yes, even some here in the United States, lift up Jesus and worship him and devote their lives to him as their reigning king. Jesus is the leader of the largest global movement that the world has ever seen. But who is Jesus? You ask people on the street today, you get a lot of different answers. He's a teacher, he's a mystic, he's a revolutionary. Uh, how would you fill in the blank? If you were to say, Jesus is blank, how would you answer that? What if you could sit down with Jesus' best friend and ask him how he would fill in the blank? Well, the reality is we can in the Gospel of John. I'm excited because we're launching a new series today on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and the, it's a book that is all about introducing us to who Jesus is. Now, John, the author, was Jesus' best friend during his ministry and, and all, and so he calls himself in the book the beloved disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what I would love to have on my grave someday, on my tombstone. It's beloved disciple, disciple, one who Jesus loved. Loved by Jesus. That's the best thing one could say about ourselves in the world, right? We're, we're loved by Christ. And John is this beloved disciple, and he writes this book um, that has become for many their favorite book of the Bible. One of the things that's beautiful about the Gospel of John is that you can read it as a new believer just the first time on kind of a surface level and go, whoa, this has introduced me to the beauty of who Jesus is. But you could also read it 80 years later as someone who's been following Jesus for years and still be pulling out riches of, oh my gosh, this is who Jesus is. Because John draws on imagery and things from all across the story of the Bible to show how the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. He's demonstrating how Jesus is the lead character in the best-selling book, the Bible, that the world has ever seen in world history. Right? So John's goal as we step into this book is to introduce us to who Jesus is.
In the first chapter alone, John uses uh, like 12 different identities for who Jesus is, 12 different titles to introduce us to Christ. Jesus is the word of God, the lamb of God, the king of Israel, and more. And then as we get out of chapter one and the book goes on, uh, we find that John uses seven I am statements to talk about who Jesus is, where Jesus says that I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, and more. We find that the gospel of John is also structured around these seven signs or miracles. And John tells us towards the end of the book why he used these signs. He's like, man, I could have used a bunch more signs. This is in John 20, coming towards the end of the book. John chapter 20, verse 30 uh, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's going, Jesus did a lot more things. I could have I included more. But he goes on verse 31 to say, but these are written. The reason I put these in here is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's saying, my main goal in this book, my main purpose is to introduce you to who Jesus is. Notice how he said, doesn't say uh, was, he doesn't say my goal is to convince you that Jesus was the Christ. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I also love how he uses the language of these signs here. And I think he's kind of going like, hey, don't miss the destination for the sign. Like, don't miss the person for the things that the miracles and the signs and things are pointing to. John's going, I'm going to include a lot of stories about Jesus, a lot of signs, but the, the destination is to introduce you to the person of Christ. You can imagine if you were on your way to Disneyland and you saw a sign that said about 120 miles to go and you were to stop and pull off the side of the road and kind of go, okay, kids, we're here, and you get out and you play in the desert and the dirt, whatever, and um, you'd be missing the point, right? Like the point of the sign is to point you to the destination. And John's going, there's a lot of stuff that, that I could have included, but I put the stories, the miracles, the things that are here are there to point you and introduce you to who Jesus is. So don't miss the destination. Don't stop at the sign. Get to the destination, the person of Jesus and his goal he says, is that you might believe, that you might trust him, that we might surrender our lives to him and find life in his name. That Jesus is able to bring you life. That's what John wants to say. Jesus, I want to introduce you to the one who has life that you're not able to find anywhere else. Jesus has life to give you life in his name. This means that Jesus is more than just an interesting historical figure. He's more than just the leader of the biggest global movement the world has ever seen. He's more than just the lead character in the best-selling book, the Bible and world history. Jesus is here to encounter you personally, to bring you and give you life. So as we step into this Gospel of John series, our goal here is to encounter afresh who Jesus is. So we're going to jump into John 1 here in a minute, but first the question that I want us to ask to kind of wrestle with here is this question. Now, you can do this if you're on Zoom, watching through Zoom. You can do this in the breakout rooms. If you are at home with family or friends, uh, you can discuss it there. If you have a journal and you're by yourself, if you want to reflect on this, that's fine. But the question is this. It's complete the sentence. Jesus is blank. Uh, what title is most significant to you? What image, story, or experience first drew you to Jesus or, Jesus, or maybe has been most significant in your own walk with him? All right, let's go and discuss that now. Who is Jesus?
All right, let's start where John starts. In John 1, the first title he introduces us to is Jesus as the Word, as the Word of God. So let's read in John 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, well, the word, that's kind of an interesting title to call someone. That's like, what's John saying with that? Is it like Jesus was the letter or the voice or the musical note or something? Well, the word, by calling him the word, John is saying that Jesus is the creator. He is the agent of creation, the one through whom all things were made. When you read those first few words, in the beginning, that's an allusion to Genesis 1, the beginning of the biblical story where it says famously, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God create the heavens and the earth? God created them through his word. If you remember the story, there's nothing but darkness and void, and then God speaks creation into existence. And God said, let there be light, let there be air, let there be land, and and it was so. God builds the universe, not with hammer and nails, but with his voice. Psalm 33, 6 uh, reflects back on this creation narrative and it puts it this way. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The psalmist here is going, like God's breath, his ruach, his spirit that was hovering over the chaos at the beginning of creation and God speaks his word and through his voice, he brings creation into existence. This is a theme in scripture. 2 Peter 3, 5 says that by God's word, the heavens came into being. Hebrews eleven three says that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We live in a spoken world. You've heard of spoken word poetry, but God does spoken world poetry, right? Like Jesus is the spoken word through whom our spoken world comes into existence. I love both J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, two of the kind of most famous Christian authors of the last century, both used images of God singing the world into existence. In C.S. Lewis's famous Chronicles of Narnia, kind of these children's storybooks, uh, Aslan the lion, he creates the world through singing the starry host and the forest and the mountains. He sings creation into existence. Similarly, J.R.R. Tolkien in The Silmarillion, it's sort of this backdrop to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, in it, the God like brings the, all creation into existence through music. Now, both Tolkien and Lewis, as Christians, were inspired by Genesis 1 and John 1. This vision of the power of God's word, his voice, to bring creation into existence. And they are hitting on a powerful truth, that matter is music. It's interesting, molecular physicists actually theorize that every atom, at some basic level, is a vibration or sound. Brian Greene, in his uh, interesting book, The Elegant Universe, he says that simply yet scientifically speaking, it's true. Matter is music. And this fits with the biblical picture that biblically speaking, all matter is embodied sound. As authors A.J. Swoboda and Ken Weitzma put it, they say, in one sense, the universe is God's voice in physical form. 
And Jesus is the melody at the center of this universe. The melody around which God orchestrates and brings around all the rest of creation. That everything is orchestrated around the sound of Jesus, God's voice at the center of the universe. Jesus holds all things together. It's another aspect of this part of calling Jesus the word. In Greek, the word is logos. And for the Greeks, uh, logos was also this concept around which everything is held together. And so that word logos, it's the uh, word that we get our word logic from, like the logic or rationality of how things work together. It's also the, where we get the words for various departments that you study at a university. So you could have biology, sociology, psychology, theology, and that logic is it's the study of, it's the study of life, the study of uh, the psyche, the study of society, the study of God. Jesus, John is saying, is the logic that holds all creation together. Only for the Greeks, that logos was more of like a concept, like an abstract concept. But John's going, no, the logos is a person. So we're going to read later in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth that holds all things together. That truth is not just an abstract concept, but all truth is ultimately grounded in Christ, the person of Christ, the living word of God. Jesus is the logic that holds all creation together. Now, this is true. This means all of life is all for Jesus. That's our vision statement here at Redemption. All of life is all for Jesus. And one of the reasons that we say that is because all of life has come from Jesus. That Jesus is the one from whom our world's existence is derived. This means that there is no sacred secular divide, no physical spiritual divide, no dichotomy where uh, this kind of stuff over here is spiritual for God and this other stuff is off limits, this is more just for us. No, it's saying all of life comes from Jesus and all of life is for Jesus. That's one of the reasons we do these First Wednesday events, a monthly gathering where we look at how the gospel relates to different aspects of culture. It's because uh, man, we believe that all of life belongs to Jesus. And so we want to look at that and go, how does the gospel relate to this aspect of culture or that aspect of culture? Because there's no area that's off limits for explaining how does this relate to Christ, the living word of God. I believe this means that we should be a curious people, curious about God's world because the, all of it belongs to Jesus. It's ultimately his. I love... Uh, Jonathan Edwards talks about how all creation echoes Jesus's glory. All creation echoes Jesus's glory. In this passage, he says, uh, the easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of, the be of Christ's beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams are the footsteps of his favor, grace, and beauty. When we behold the light and brightness of the sun, the golden edges of an evening cloud, or the beauteous rainbow, we behold the adumbrations of his glory and goodness, and in the blue sky of his mildness and gentleness. It's not only the beauty of creation, but also the bigness of creation that points and speaks to and echoes Christ's power as the living word through whom all things were made. Jesus is the agent of of creation. John wants us to know 
As we're getting ready to dive into his gospel here in this introduction, John wants us to know that the one who came to save the world is the very one who made the world. I love how Athanasius, the early church father in the fourth century put it, where he said, it is right and fitting that the uh, redemption of the world is wrought through the same word by which the world was made. When Jesus is not only our savior, but our savior is also our maker. It's this picture of like the artist who brought forth the painting of creation, now stepping into the canvas of his masterpiece, entering into his creation to redeem it. And yet the one who has come to redeem us is the grand artist who brought us into existence to begin with. And when John says, nothing was made that has been made without him, that means that includes you. That includes you. Jesus is the source of your existence. Your existence comes not only from your parents but from a, and the generations that have gone before, but from a deeper level, ultimately your existence comes from God. So as we step into this series on John, the invitation in exploring who Jesus is is to get to know the heart of your maker, to get to know the heart of your creator. Stop and think about that for a moment. But again, stop and think about that for a lifetime. Like the invitation to get to know who Jesus is, is to get to know your creator, your maker, the one who ultimately formed you. As we step into learning more about who Jesus is in this series, we're gonna be pressing into understanding the logic at the heart of creation, the melody at the center of the universe. It's an invitation to get to know the very heart of God. So the next question that we wanna process here, discuss here together, is this, that Jesus as creator, and that's a bigger vision than probably many of us have in our culture. How does Jesus as creator, or better yet, why does Jesus as creator mean that all of life is all for Jesus? And how is that maybe a bigger vision of Jesus than uh, some today have of him? Let's talk about that now.
All right, I hope that was a good discussion. In verse 1, we also read that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, that's Trinitarian language. John is pointing here to Jesus as the second person of the triune God. That Jesus is, not only has this role with creation, but this identity as the creator. When you think about your words, the word is a Trinitarian image. Uh, your words, they proceed from you, so they're distinct from you, and yet they're identified with you. They're your words and not another's. Right? And similarly, Jesus proceeds from God, so he's distinct from God as a person, and yet he is, is God. He shares this identity, nature, essence, substance with God. As John puts it here, he is with God, or distinct, and yet he is God, divine. Jesus is both distinct and divine. The Nicene Creed uh, uses two similar images for this that we also see in the Gospel of John. The image of a child and the image of light. And so the child imagery, the Nicene Creed refers to Jesus as the only begotten son of God. And that image is a child imagery. So you think about a child, uh, is, the child proceeds from their parents. And so they share, uh, they're distinct from their parents as a person, yet they share this identity, essence, nature, uh, substance that they receive from their parents, even their name with their parents. So they're distinct, yet share this identity with their parents. Another image that's used is um, light from light. The Nicene Creed refers to Jesus as light from light. And we're actually going to see that next week in the John 1 verse 4, the very next verse of John, he refers to Jesus as the light of the world, the light that comes from God and brings life to the world. And you think about light, if you think about like the sun and the rays that proceed from the sun, the rays that proceed from the sun, they're distinct from the sun. They're kind of their own thing. And yet they share the same nature, identity, and essence with the sun that they proceed from. Light from light. Now, all three of these images, they point to the fact that Jesus, uh, he proceeds from the Father. And he shares his identity with the Father. He's a distinct yet divine. sharing this essence, nature, substance with the identity of God. What this means practically is that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is an accurate reflection of who God is. In John 14, 9, uh, Jesus is going to say this later in John's gospel. Here in John 14, 9, he says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because he has come from the Father. I love how Hebrews puts it in the book of Hebrews, verses one, chapter 1, verse 3. It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Now, in context here in Hebrews, uh, it's just said before this that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways. He spoke through prophets and these various ways. But now it says God has spoken to us by his son. Catch an image of, that imagery of word. Jesus is the spoken word. God has spoken to us by his son, through whom he made all things. And goes on to say here that the son, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. He is the radiance of his glory. The early church father, Gregory of Nyssa, in the fourth century, he talked about the, this, this verse and Jesus being the radiance of God's glory, that's kind of light imagery. And I find this really powerful. This is what Gregory had to say. He said, as the light from the lamp is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it, 
For as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place, in Hebrews 1.3, the apostle would have us consider both that the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance. Is it impossible? Is it impossible that the light, the lamp, should be without brightness? Seeing that Jesus eternally proceeds from God, there was never a time when He was not. He's always with God as the Word, as the Son, as the Light. That Jesus is proceeds from God. And he shares His identity with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together are an eternal communion of love. And that this means that to encounter Jesus is to encounter God. Jesus is not a fake Instagram account. Right? Like today, we can create avatars uh, that actually are nothing like us, the people who have created them. They look nothing like the person. Uh, we can present an Instagram life that is nothing like our real life and our dirty dishes and whatever else behind the scenes. We can get on Facebook and project how we want to be seen and known, but it can be entirely disconnected from the reality of who we really are. Uh, for example, someone actually recently made a fake Josh Butler Instagram account, right? So uh, this is a serious business that unfortunately we have to deal with today. I've got to address this. And no, I'm just joking. It's actually kind of funny. But <clears throat> someone made this fake Josh Butler account, and it must be someone here at our church because they it will take you know analogies or metaphors from sermons, things that come out, and um, we'll post them up uh, like this one. So this is hashtag grace for pyromaniacs. And this came out of one sermon where I shared a story of my son who accidentally set a neighbor's house on fire and the neighbor forgave him and had grace for him. And so God has grace for us when we, you know, do bad things. And so uh, this post became kind of grace for pyromaniacs and over in the caption kind of goes off beyond this and extends the meta metaphor to uh, often almost ridiculous uh, lengths or whatever, right? And uh, the reality is some of us have had kind of a fake Instagram account experience with God, right? That, um, Man, there are people who have said things about God, done things about God, have done things in his name that, uh, man, have distorted or jacked up our impressions of who God really is. But kind of like this fake Instagram account, like, it didn't come from me. It claims to represent me, but it didn't actually proceed from me. It didn't actually come from me. It's not an accurate representation or image of who I am. And uh, sorry, this, whoever the, this account is, they, they make fun of me for uh, making these metaphors. I'm actually going to flip the script and make fun of the making fun of the metaphors by actually turning this into a metaphor. So there we go. But there's this picture here, this uh, fake Instagram account. And Jesus is not a fake Instagram account. He is the real deal. He proceeds from the Father. And he accurately represents the Father. As we step into the series and we explore who Jesus is, some of us have some perceptions of God that need to be challenged, need to be shifted. Maybe for some of you, you've come to see God as kind of cruel and vindictive. And we need to encounter the sacrificial compassion of Jesus. For others, maybe we've come to see God as kind of this pushover pansy, sort of the eternal nice guy. And we need to encounter the prophetic fire. Jesus. Jesus is the real deal. He proceeds from God and he accurately represents who God is because he is the second person of the triune God. He is 
distinct yet divine. He is God. Now, historically, this is the problem with some heresies that have existed in church history. A heresy, that can be a loaded term, but essentially means false teaching, and usually has to do with really serious matters, things about like who God is, who Christ is, things at the center of our faith about the identity of God. And the reason these have been such a big problem is because they're like fake Instagram accounts, right? They're intending to represent God, but they're claiming to represent God, but they are misrepresenting God from how he's actually revealed himself through Christ, his word, in scripture. So to give three examples, some early heresies that misrepresented Jesus's divinity, his deity. One of these is called adoptionism. This is the idea that Jesus was essentially a really good human who at some point proved himself enough that God adopted him and made him divine, right? So Jesus proved himself maybe after his wilderness temptation or after uh, his suffering on the cross, but eventually he got to the point where God said, all right, you passed the test, you're good enough, now I'll make you divine. And that was, that's heresy, right? Like John confronts that here in the beginning of John's gospel saying, no, in the beginning, he was with God and was God. That he didn't have to prove himself, he has been with God as the eternal beloved of the Father before beginning time. A second heresy was modalism. And this one was saying that, um, okay, God is, uh, you know, that God is one substance, one per, you know, but essentially like one person that will maybe at times put on these different masks. So today I'll look like I'm a father. Today I'll look like I'm the son. Today I'll look like I'm the spirit. Um, and John's gospel confronts this. That was heresy because going, no, Jesus is with God as a distinct person. The eternal word, the eternal son of God was always with God as a distinct person. To have this communion of love has to have different persons, right? And so this was a fake Instagram account that misrepresented the persons of God who make the communion of love, who is God. The third final heresy we'll talk about here is Arianism. And Arianism was one that said um, there was a time where Jesus was not, but eventually God made Jesus. So back before creation, at some point, God couldn't taint himself with the material world. So God made Jesus, and then Jesus was able to make the world as sort of this intermediary for God to make the world. And the problem with this, John confronts this here in his gospels while saying, no, from the beginning, Jesus was not only with God, Jesus was God, is God, like shares in his divine identity. Kind of like that Gregory of Nyssa quote, like the father and son are always together in their spirit, with their spirit. The father, son, and spirit are an eternal communion of love who have never been without one another. The Nicene Creed, uh, this is the classic formulation of Christian orthodoxy in the early church. So this is shared by Protestants, by Catholics, by Orthodox alike. Um, and it's a statement on what we believe about who God is and who Jesus is. And when it comes to Jesus, the creed says this. It says that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Notice that language of, uh, it's like that language of procession, like proceeding God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. And this is safeguarding, ultimately the Trinity safeguards our understanding of who Jesus is. The reason it's important is not just for like abstract speculation or whatever, but it arises from grappling with who is Jesus. 
And the early church, they weren't going, hey, let's just kind of come up with some uh, abstract speculation or things. They were grappling with who Jesus is. And there were people saying, well, Jesus um, was just human, a really good guy. He wasn't really divine. They're going, no, that's not true. So we can't say that. And other people were going, no, he was divine, but he couldn't really be tainted by the world. He wasn't fully human. They're like, no, we can't say that. And in the process of grappling with who Jesus is and then relating that to who God is, is it's how the doctrine of the Trinity um, really becomes so powerful and profound is it safeguarding the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and who the Father, Son, and Spirit are as the eternal communion of love, the triune God. And practically what this means is that Jesus is the trustworthy, accurate, reliable revelation of God. That when you see Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, what you see is what you get and who you get is the true representation of God because Jesus himself proceeds from God. Getting to know who Jesus is, it's like sitting down in the coffee shop with someone where they begin to open their mouth and give you their words. They begin to give you their word to express and reveal. Now, this is who I am. It's God going, let me reveal to you through my word, through Jesus, my, my spoken word, the one through whom the world has spoken to existence. I'm going to share with you, this is who I am. Not the projections that you've made, not the rumors other people have said. We encounter who Jesus is. We're encountering God's revelation of himself to us in Christ. So the question that I want us to grapple with now is who Jesus is, how does who Jesus is confront some popular perceptions of God out there? Think about some characteristics, something that stands out about the person of Christ, who Jesus is, and maybe talk about how is that a contrast to maybe some of the popular perceptions of God that are out there in our world today. Go.
Well, finally, what does this all mean for us today? One implication is that words matter. Like, our words matter because God's word matters. There is a power to our words. If one of the deepest things that can be said of Jesus is that he is the word of God, expressing who God is from the inside out, revealing the very heart and identity of God, then how important does that mean our words are, expressing the depths of who we are and where we're at? Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, verse 34, that out of the overflow or abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that our words proceed from who we are, the essence of who we are and where we're at. That means that if our words coming out are kind of gnarly, right, that can be a good check engine light on the dashboard of our lives to kind of go, okay, maybe there's some stuff going on under the hood, either things I'm saying and things I want to say. Uh, if they, they're not really Christ-like, then maybe I, I need to take a look at what's going on down beneath. Because the reality is, like, our words can either um, be life-giving words or Proverbs says they can also be death-dealing words. Proverbs 18.21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Our words are powerful. So we see positive and negative images for our words in scripture. We see in James 3 that the tongue is compared to the fire, like a spark, similar to how a spark can burn down a whole forest. So James says our words can burn down our lives and hurt and harm other people. Proverbs uh, 12:18 also talks about rash words being like sword thrusts to the person. We also see positive images for words in Scripture that uh, Proverbs 15, 4 says a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And Proverbs 10, 11 says the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. So what kind of words do you want yours to be? Like sword thrusts and raging sparks that start raging wildfires? Or a fountain of life, a tree of life? that our words can either build bridges or walls. And what we see in the gospel is that God's spoken word built a bridge to us. And the word ultimately became flesh for our redemption. So there is a power to our words. Last week, uh, Jim and Warren talked about our King of Kings campaign that we're doing this fall season. They kind of did the first uh, kickoff for that. And one of the things that we talked about was just going as we head into the election season this fall, uh, that we'll all be coming from our various leanings and places we're coming from, but we wanna really lift up in this season is Jesus as the King of Kings, that he has our ultimate allegiance over any idols or ideologies that might uh, be at play today. We wanna ultimately lift up Jesus as the King of Kings and our devotion to him. And part of what that means is a commitment in terms of how we speak to each other and to others in this season that will likely get increasingly divisive and polarized. And so uh, we had the King of Kings commitment was one thing we talked about. And a, a few dozen of you have already signed that. Over 60 people have already signed that, stepped into that. And that's us committing to going, uh, the kind of people that we want to be, a Christ-like posture. And some of those things had to do with fruitful speech, like the way that we speak to and about others. We would not dehumanize or use caricatures of where other people are at, but that we would really take a humble learning posture, that we would seek to remove the log from our own eyes, uh, that we would love and pray for our enemies, that we would have a posture of worship and treating others with dignity and respect as image bearers. That doesn't mean that we can't enter in, that we can engage in the conversation, uh, important national conversation, all of that we would do so with a Christ-like posture that ultimately seeks to love God and love our neighbor as ourself, <clears throat> both in person and online and the ways that we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus in this season. 
there is a power to our words. And so we want to follow Jesus in that arena of our life. As mentioned a second ago, that our words have the power to build bridges or to build walls. And what we find in Christ is that Christ, the spoken word of God, built a bridge to us in our alienation. And so stronger than our death-dealing words and sin is God's life-giving word spoken in Christ. This means that even deeper and stronger than the power of our words is the power of God's word, of Christ, the word of God, the life-giving word of God spoken into our alienation and death. Jesus is the living word of God, the powerful word of God. Words matter because the word matters. Christ is the living word of God who has come with us and for us. And the invitation is to get to know who Jesus is. And this raises a question. Sometimes people will say, uh, well, is Jesus the word of God or is the Bible the word of God? I've had some folks in the past say, hey, the word of God's not the Bible, it's Jesus. But that is a false dichotomy. It's not an either or, it's a both end. Like the scriptures are the written word that point and draw us to Christ, the living word. One of the things that we're gonna see as we step into this John series is that John sees all of scripture as pointing to Jesus. He sees all of scripture as a unified story. The whole Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. Another thing we're gonna see is Jesus himself, uh, Jesus's vision on the authority of scripture. As Jesus is getting questioned, he's constantly going back, it is written, it is written, it is written, pointing to the authority of Scripture. And when Jesus talks about the Bible and the Gospels, he talks about its authority as being unbreakable, unviolatable, that not a jot or tittle will pass away. Jesus talk, sees Scripture as binding and as authoritative. For those who want to dismiss Scripture uh, and yet follow Jesus, we need to take a closer look at what the Son of God said about the Word of God. And yet, ultimately, the Word of God, Scripture, serves to point us, draw us to encountering the Word of God, Jesus, the person. You can almost think of it like if you got a love letter from someone um, that, man, it, you, you were in a relationship with and we're all about that person. Like two dangers, two problems. One would be to just kind of ignore the author of the letter. To go like, oh, I don't need, I need the author because I got the letter. I'm going to put it in glass and read it every day and just become obsessed with it. But I don't really care about the author, the, the, the person. That would be ridiculous, right? But another problem would be to throw the love letter in the trash and go like, well, that doesn't matter because um, I'm, just, I'm just all about the person. But the reality is if they were in a way on a trip, that kind of thing, that like that letter, those words would show you the heart of that person for you, would show you their vision for how things would be and what things would look like for you in the meantime until you're reunited again. And similarly here, as we step into the Gospel of John, similar to how we want to approach Scripture as a whole, it's when the invitation is to encounter through it who Jesus is. Vision, our goal, the invitation for this whole series to encounter who Jesus is, because as the living word, Jesus is what God has to say to the world. And the invitation, even this morning, is to come to Jesus, the word of God, the voice of God, the melody at the center of the universe, the logic who holds together creation, Jesus, the living word. And as we come to the table, for those of you who prepared the elements of communion, either with family or friends or at home, uh, whatever you have available, 
But as we come now to receive communion, we come to Christ, the Word, who took on flesh, to be seen in the bread, to be broken and given for us. We come to Christ, the life giver, who took on the life-giving power of human blood in order to shed it and pour it out for us, represented in the wine. We come to Christ who, in his crucifixion and his death, Jesus is the voice of God spoken into our grave, into our death, to be united with us there and to raise us in his life-giving, resurrecting power. Jesus is the spoken word of God. And the invitation now is to respond with our words of worship. So let's join together now and worship Christ, the living word.